Coming in hot this week, Jeff, I want to talk about, since a lot of these bowl games are played in far off places in weird lands, I want to talk about home teams and home stadiums of some of the okay. private schools, because I we were having, before we got on mic, I, we were having a short conversation about this. So I jotted down as many private schools in the FBS level that I could think of, and I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on whether or not you think they're on campus or not. And to kick this off, we've got the Miami of Florida Hurricanes. And they play off campus. At least that's how I'm yes. determining it. Want to know if you agree? Um, I don't have Google Maps up, but everything that I have heard, Miami Gardens, Coral Gables, not near each other and both not technically Miami. Very strange. The Orange Bowl. I think it's like a 40-minute a drive or something. Yes. We can have a separate conversation about college teams playing in professional stadiums as their home stadium. But we'll leave that for a different conversation. Um, we've got the Tulane Green Wave. They, I know they built a really beautiful on-campus stadium uh, in the past decade or so. They did, and it's very nice. Uh, so we're going to count them as on-campus. You had quibbles with Northwestern because I have them as on-campus. You slightly disagree. So I've gone to a game at uh, Ryan Field. It's surrounded by a residential neighborhood, but it's also a couple blocks from campus. I think where we parked, we had to take a school bus um, from the parking area to the stadium because we parked at a different point on campus and Northwestern's campus because there is a lake. It is sort of long. It's a weird shape. So I would say it's campus adjacent and I'm looking at the list and I think there's another uh, school that is very similar where it is Pretty close to campus, although I think it is technically like just off campus. So you'll forgive me. I kind of view Northwestern as the city of Evanston. I know the residents of Evanston would be furious to hear me say <laughs> that. So I apologize to Evanston, Indiana. But in my mind, if Evanston, any, <laughs> you did you say Evanston, Indiana? I did. So I apologize to them as well. Evanston, <laughs> Illinois. But in my mind, if they are in the city limits of Evanston, Illinois, they are really on Northwestern's campus. So the stadium, in my mind, is as on campus as can be, but at least much closer than some other examples. Yes. Um, I've got Southern California and the L.A. Coliseum. So this is a hearing secondhand from in-laws. It is... Similarly to Northwestern's, it's technically not on campus. It's not on USC's land. I believe it's on like L.A. Park in L.A. Park uh, managed land. But it is like right across the street from campus. That sounds about right. I it's it's hard for me to make a judgment on that. A lot has changed, particularly since the Olympics happened. Um and the stadium had a, got a lot of use out of it. I will count it as on campus for the purposes of this because UCLA's is for sure not on campus. But this conversation. Yeah, you, you could walk schools. between USC and the Coliseum. It would be more of a hike uh, to go to the Rose Bowl from from Westwood. Uh, you would also probably trespass on a number of very swanky golf courses to do so. Welcome to the resistance. Um, Duke University down in Durham, uh, their stadium, uh, 
Wade, is it Wade Wilson? Is that the name of the stadium there? Um, they're pretty on campus. Yeah. That one's pretty on campus. Beautiful campus. Beautiful campus. I've been there. Very nice. Very lovely. My brother, you'll, you'll appreciate this. My Aggie <laughs> brother who went to North Carolina A&T, he lives on Duke's campus. Oh. His residency. I'll say Neighborhood is on campus. I'll say it is a beautiful campus. Great gardens. Uh, beautiful cathedral they have. So I think they call it a cathedral. They are Methodist. We'd have to ask them. Um, Syracuse, for the purpose of this, we're going to call them private. Yes, this is one of the weird gray areas, but they're not FOIA-able, and we don't know how much their coach makes. <laughs> so I'm going to just go ahead and consider it private for that purpose. But the Carrier Dome is smack dab on campus. So, or at least that's how I've seen the map. I uh, figured I'd ask your opinion <laughs> on that. You know better than I do. Yep. I'm going to call that on campus. Plus, it's cold in Syracuse, New York. It's a long walk. Um, <laughs> I put this one on here. I don't know if you've been to Notre Dame Stadium or not. I have not yet. Probably will in a couple of years. It it is everything I've heard from from our Notre Dame uh, friends. It is very much on campus and very integrated to the greater architecture of campus. Okay, we're going to count it. Um, after that, we've got Stanford and Stanford Stadium, which is on campus as well. Uh, just another scenario where Palo Alto, I think, is basically Stanford's campus. But it's it's within walking distance. Uh, BC, Boston College. Not in Boston, not a not college. Not in Boston, not a college. But their campus is in Chestnut Hill, which is where the campus is located. So the stadium is on campus yeah. in my mind. Uh, I included Tulsa. I really wish I had more knowledge of this because this is the smallest school in FBS. But Tulsa is also the city of Tulsa, but the city of Tulsa is enormous. So I don't exactly know if this is on campus or not. I am not sure either. Hmm. All right. We'll leave this one up in the air. <laughs> Brigham Young. They're on campus. Fairly certain. Yeah, fairly certain they're on campus. Vanderbilt. This one is I on have campus. Been to Nashville. It is right on campus. It this is, one it is, is on right campus. on campus. Also, another beautiful campus. It is. Oh, yeah. I only know this because I when I was looking at grad school, Fisk and Vanderbilt have a joint physics program. And I was told by my one of my mentors at Norfolk State who was in a who is a Fisk alumni go to Fisk. And so I applied and visited. Fisk is beautiful. And they took me by Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt, also beautiful. Um, Vanderbilt's can campus is an arbitorium. Yes. The entire campus, which shocked me when I heard it. Did not know that was a thing a campus could be. Wake Forest. I... It is on campus. In, I've driven through uh, their campus. Winston-Salem? In Winston-Salem. I have to I have to remember because there is a ton of Wake Forest. There's a ton of college Wake Forest. Was at one point in and isn't anymore. So. And a fun story. So here's what, here's how it was described to me when I drove by. 
the campus has a soft barrier between it and Winston-Salem. Okay. That's how they explained it to me. It's one of those things you can be off campus and walk onto campus and not realize it. That's how it was explained okay. to me. Like there's, there is a gate somewhere, but there's also just soft points where you just walk on campus. The stadium is one of those barriers. That's how it was described okay. to me. It's like the, the stadium is also just off campus, but clearly it's a part of the university. So when you go to the stadium, you are on campus. Yeah, That's I feel like for a lot of these, the stadiums are on the edges, probably because that is where there was space and not already academic buildings. I know Purdue is like that. My sister went to Maryland. Maryland's sort of, I guess the basketball arena is at the edge. The football stadium is kind of in the center. Very different than like University of Cincinnati, where the football stadium is basically the same building as a student union. <laughs> No, you're exactly right. I, I'm looking at like just kind of pictures. There's a lot of middle and there's a lot of nothing out there in North Carolina, particularly in the county that this that this school is in. But it is owned and operated by Wake Forest University, and they consider it to be on campus. So we'll count that for now. Uh, Temple, another one of these weird gray area, <laughs> semi private, semi public yeah do we want to talk all the all three of the weird pennsylvania situation schools at once because temple is absolutely they do not play on, on campus they play it at uh the link the eagle stadium yep. um similar to Pitt that plays at uh yep. the steeler stadium it is i think a little easier to get to uh heinz field from Pitt's campus than it is the link from uh Temple's campus. Um, well, I think both are on on transit in, in both cities. Uh, Penn State, it is definitely on campus, but Penn State is less in a city and Mid more in the middle. Of no North. offense to State College. I'll say it is. It is. It is the the college is the place it State College is, as opposed to Temple and and Pitt that are. They're colleges that happen to be in cities. Correct. I will also say this. Pennsylvania University, or excuse me, the University of Pennsylvania, Penn, they have an on-campus stadium and are private. Yeah, I think Penn's uh, stadium is actually probably closer to Temple than the link is. It is. Veteran Stadium was not. Veteran Stadium was closer than Penn. But that's gone now. So they play at the link. Yeah. The link is further away. Also, Ironically, Villanova Stadium is also closer to Temple. <laughs> so, they'll never get an on-campus stadium, apparently. Um, fun fact, my cousin played football for Temple. Oh, he transferred neat. there after he left West Virginia State. Uh, here's a few Texas, Texas fellas who one has a new stadium and one renovated their stadium. Baylor. On campus? I... I don't know because okay. they just built that new stadium and the new stadium was on the other side of the highway. Oh, maybe not. Because you can see it from the highway. Like you can see into the stadium from the highway. So I don't know. TCU's I think is on campus. I think. 
believe Gerald Ford, not that one stadium, is on campus. Isn't Gerald Ford Southern Methodist? Oh, sorry, you're right. Gerald Ford is Southern is Southern Methodist. I don't know what TC is. Amos. Amos Field or something like that? Yes. Apologies, TCU and SMU. Um, I just know I had I had the conversation with my in-laws. It's Gerald Ford Stadium. No, not that one during a bowl game. Because both SMU and TCU host bowl games. So uh, and Texas, not the actual Cotton Bowl. Texas Christian. Is, yeah, the actual Cotton Bowl doesn't host the Cotton Bowl game. The Cotton Bowl Classic. The Cotton Bowl hosts a week one game. Called yeah. the Cotton Bowl Kickoff. Weird. Uh, but Amon G. Carter Stadium is where Texas Christian University plays football. And it is on campus. It is right on campus. Okay. So, and they just did an expansion of it in 2019. So that's interesting. Very good, guys. Uh, and finally, I have rice on here. They always report that the... We go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard was on Rice's campus and it was at Rice Stadium. So I think. Sure. Let's go with that. I'm I'm trying to think of all the Houston schools. And I think all of the Houston schools play on campus, including the University of Houston, Rice, Texas Southern and Prairie View A&M all have campuses with the stadium on it. That is. More universities than I thought were in Houston. I, I, I don't think I, re- I realized that both Texas Southern and Prairie View were in Houston. I kind of assumed Prairie View was similar to Texas A&M. Sort of. Out. Outside one of the big cities. Prairie. But that may just be me, me, me knowing that Prairie View A&M history as in many ways, a mirror of Texas A&M. I just assumed it was very similar. Prairie View is a city in Waller County, Texas, situated on the northwestern edge of the Houston, the Woodlands, Sugarland metropolitan area. Okay. So it is not as far out as you might think, but it is also a land grant school. So it is very far out. Um, they got, let's see here. Uh, yeah, I imagine when it was founded, it was in the middle of a bunch of farms and now it's in the middle of a bunch of suburban sprawl because Houston. Uh, so no, um, Prairie View A&M's history, they were actually founded in the middle of non-farmland. They were actually founded in the middle of nowhere. Um, and they were given 1400 acres and we're told you can have this land that nobody wants and And they went and said, we will make this usable land. And over the course of the last 150-ish years, uh, they have turned it into usable farmland. It's very impressive. Prairie Prairie View A&M is like a super impressive university that just, against all odds, continues to be one of the great institutions that we have. Um, They have over 9,000 students. So I love them so much. One of my very good friends is an alumni. We talk all the time. He's just like, uh, he he always laughs because when we talked about Chopped and Screwed, he's like, that came from Prairie View, you know. They talk to say, they say it came, it came from Prairie View. It's like, all right, not my, not my fight. <laughs> you win. 
Very funny. Very funny times. Um, you had a note here about New Year's resolutions. You want to walk us through that as we're getting close to the end? Yeah. So, so we were recording on December 30th. Probably this will be released on December 31st or just about. Uh, so perfect time for New Year's resolutions. I am going to attempt to uh, get an under two hour half marathon time. Uh, first attempt at that will be actually January 14th. We will still have the uh, charity giving link in show notes if you want to uh, help with that. But I've got one half marathon that is then and then I'll probably do a couple more throughout the year. So we will see uh, if I can break that. But I am way ahead of that pace on a 5K. I've done a 10K in my training that I was ahead of the pace I would need for a under two hour half. So I think I am on my way to getting there. We'll see if if that happens when in the year. But it for for a goal of probably the first half I did that was, you know, at like 245 a number of years ago, getting down under two would be a big, big thing for me. What's your personal best on a 10K? Personal best on a 10K. I think it was about 56 minutes or 55 minutes. That is impressive. Very impressive. So my New Year's resolution, um, I want to read more books for myself. So I I do a lot of reading for work, um, which is a lot of technical reading. Um, I do a lot of reading for school. It's a lot of academic or science reading. But uh, I don't do a lot of personal reading. I don't do a lot of reading just for the sake of it or, or in a topic I'm interested in. Um, I'm currently burning through um, a couple of books on my desk behind me. Uh, so large, hefty nonfiction books. But um, my goal is to read more books. I have a number. I don't know if I want to say it out loud yet, but my goal is to up my reading time uh, to find it within my day. Obviously, dad, husband, federal government employee. It's tough to tough to then say, I'm going to take 30 minutes and read just something I want to read by myself. So that's my goal is to increase my reading to 30 minutes a day of something I want to read and uh, read a number of books. So at the end of the year, next year, next December, I can say, look at all the books I read and fill my uh, fill my bookshelf behind me so that I can have more than physics books on there. It's funny. A friend of ours, a family friend was like, God, you guys have so many textbooks when we moved. And we were like, yeah, we're we're academics. It's like they were very upset they had to help us move. Yeah, I'll say I think I'm most of my a note. I only have an undergrad degree, but like most of my textbooks were a buy and then like, oh, I'll never need this again. We sell back to the uh, bookstore. Affairs. Which I probably should have kept more of them, but I I kept them all. Uh, and then the reason why is physics books don't get a good payback. So if you buy a physics textbook, when you go to sell it back, because there aren't that many physics students, I think there were six undergrads when I was an undergrad total. Wow. And uh, at Howard, there's. There's more. There's about 30 undergrads, but there's only like a half dozen grads. So if I went to the bookstore and said, I'd like to sell this back, they would say, well, we, we, we don't 
no one's going to buy it. So we'll give you five <laughs> bucks. So I just kept on my books. They have served me well. Um, I love them so much because I've learned a lot out of them. So I'm a better person for having them. That's what I'll say. That's what I'll believe. Offline, that is an, <laughs> that might be something interesting to, to dig into because I feel like there are typically a lot of people in physics classes. I did not realize there were in a lot of places so few physics students. So that is a interesting thing. Or maybe just the one physics, the couple of physics classes I took were like the introductory level that like every engineering major had to take. Plus, probably people in college of science. Plus, so not necessarily the high le- the uh, high level courses that probably are just the physics students. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. I um, physics is a requirement at Norfolk State for a lot of majors because like the business degree is a bachelor's of science. So you have to take physics, right? Um, That being said, um, I don't know how many students at say the liberal arts college that I went to Norfolk state university would have to take waves or electromagnetism. So the, the, the bookstore didn't like when I went to buy my thermodynamics book, the bookstore didn't even stock it. And their argument was the course isn't held every semester. And when it is, it has less than five students and we cannot order less than five books. So I actually had to buy it (laughs) off Amazon, a place that I still buy my books because I'm an old man. Um, (laughs) But uh, that may be different at Purdue. So Purdue may have upwards of 100 grad students in the physics department. And probably yeah. twice that in the physics department. Um, that's not necessarily the case at HBCUs. Like th- that being said, like I'm a rarity in that I have two physics degrees from different HBCUs. Yeah, and I mean, I think you meant you mentioned thermo specifically, which I don't know if physics thermo and engineering thermo are radically different in like textbook and everything, but yeah, like half of the engineering majors at Purdue had to take thermo. There were differences semester to semester in uh, nature of the class that involved interdepartmental drama. So (laughs) and there are that many people that take it and it like it's done every semester, but it is slightly different for reasons. Engineering thermodynamics. Um, and I had some engineers working, some undergrad engineers working with me. And it was like, yeah, we have a table. And that's how we calculate entropy. Once we get past a certain number of like, it's like, yeah, we don't have to get that deep into it. Like, you just, here, you write it out like this. And it's like, <laughs> so like, you're in grad school. Like, how does, how does physics talk about entropy? And I'm like, okay, well, so entropy, entropy, broadly speaking, S is equal to the Boltzmann constant time, the natural log of omega and omega in this equation is the number of possible states that your system could be in. Then you have to make sure it's a closed system. But if you want to get even more into it, then we can actually set up a partial integral of this to get your entropy. And it's like, they're like looking at me and they're like, why are you going that deep into it? I'm like, well, I'm physics. (laughs) Like, you know, it's cool to talk about all the possibilities of all the particles that are in the system. And they were like, don't you have a table? I'm like, well, no, because <laughs> if I made a table, the table could be wrong. 
if you want more of this and other nerdy uh, statistical uh, mechanics that I have gone into for the, I got blocked by the sickos on this because they were trying to figure out <laughs> all of the possible outcomes of the uh the pod oh, system in the sec so i wrote an equation for jordan i sent it to him and he was like i have a phd i have a phd in, in music and education no go away leave me alone <laughs> i said but jordan yeah like, Go ahead, go ahead, Jeff. Music theory is also very complicated. It I is. will not try and interrogate all of that. Uh, but yeah, I feel like what you learn is a PhD in something means you know very deep into that thing. Anything yep. else? Different story. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, Much even respect. when we're talking, yeah. I He got mad at me. Like he wrote back and was just like, why are you doing this? I'm like, well, you wanted to figure it out and calculate. So, you know, I just took like energy levels of an atom that an electron could go into. And I just reversed engineer it to do. He was just like, stop it. He, he like sprayed me like a cat. It was like, stop it, stop it. So uh, fun times with the sickos, stuff that didn't get produced and published. Uh, but I think that could be our cold open. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Bowl Week 3, the recap uh, of Feed Your Mascot. My name is Blue, and I am joined by the globetrotting Jeff in a very, in a different location today than the last time I recorded with him, which was a few days ago. You might be in a different room, and maybe not a different place, but... I, s- I swore I am literally in the exact same location in my in-law's house, so unless I am just... My camera angle is slightly different, so the bed that I'm sitting on looks slightly different or lighting or something. The lighting's different because I don't remember the window. Oh, because it was dark out. That's why. That's why it was was dark out the last time we record. Well, anyways, Jeff, how are you? What are you up to? I am good. Um, We are actually prepping for Christmas dinner number two since my brother-in-law is coming into town uh, today, since he had to work a decent portion over the uh, main Christmas week, so uh, I've got some uh, some food that I'm gonna start prepping once we uh, finish recording and enjoying the weirdly warm weather in North Carolina during during the holiday season. Is this a Mizzou very happy brother-in-law? This is yes, this is my Mizzou brother-in-law, and he is ecstatic. Um, so too are uh obviously in-laws uh while watching this game. Uh both the schools that they went to don't have uh college football, so they live vicariously through uh their kids' schools and Mizzou providing a little bit better of the year this year for that, although they were uh it took him a while to get 
particularly excited into the game given the nature of the Missouri-Ohio State game. Oh boy, Cotton Bowl champs, your Missouri Tigers. This week, though, and I think we'll get into that game at a later time because I watched it uh, and it was great. But I do want to start off this week. We both watched Utah play West, or excuse me, Northwestern. Uh, your note got me a little confused here of Big Ten <laughs> Mountain West. So very good, very funny. Uh, I liked it a lot. What did you take away from this game? It ended 14-7, went the way of the Wildcats. What did you think of this game when you watched it? These are two really, really good defenses. And we knew that coming in. Um, and they both kind of proved themselves really, really well. I mean, both teams had really good havoc rates. Uh, 13% for Northwestern, that's 68th percentile, and 15% for uh, Utah, that's 81st percentile. And I think if you kind of watching the tape, um, the Northwestern defensive line had some really interesting things that they were doing in terms of stunts um, that I think really confused the offensive line of Utah. And that was a great deal of why they were able to get to the quarterback. Um, they were able to really prevent anything from happening um, in the run game either. Um, and it was just kind of a complete defensive performance. It was one of the weirder games from a turnovers perspective. So Northwestern did um, recover one fumble and uh, got two interceptions. There were, however, a number of times that player was down, the ball popped out where it felt like there were just so many more fumbles than there actually were. Um, Northwestern really, really did a great job um, getting to Utah's players, getting the ball out, really preventing much from happening at all. Yeah, I watched it, and this is one of the times we can have the argument, is it very good defense or very sloppy offense? And I don't want to say it's a little of column A, a little column B, because these defenses were on one in this game. They were hitting. They were playing tough. I, I know a lot of people complain the Bulls or XYZ. Both of these teams took it serious, and they came out to win this game. And I think that's evidenced by the score of 14-7. to Yeah. I mean, watching it, it didn't feel like the defenses or the offenses were bad. It just felt like the defenses were good. Yeah, they were. And and again, I I will point out Utah is still without Cam Rising, uh, who did not play in the bowl game. Uh, and he's been hurt majority of the year. I think he didn't play at all during the season or only played very, very sparingly. But they, this was a great game. I enjoyed it from beginning to end. I see you also caught on to the interesting slash weird note of the second quarter commentary. Do you mind walking us through that at all? Yeah, what do you and think? I will I will say we get into um, the Hazing Scandal Northwestern as part of this commentary. I'll put a show notes when we are done with the commentary. If um, that's not a topic you feel comfortable listening to. Um, but uh, Greg McElroy and Sean McDonough, um, who were on the call, um, had talked about discussing with players and coaches um, during the lead up to the game and that a number of the players and coaches um, called the hazing allegations, quote, a bunch of nonsense. There was actually an assistant who thought it was, and these are quotes from McDonough and Mackerel's commentary, 
um, quote, totally made up and that, quote, this is the best culture he had been around, which is a strange way to put that. Yeah. And I think they underplayed what they essentially reported, which is within the football rooms, they're denying the allegations and that the there may not be the awareness of what next steps you typically should do in this situation. They are. And so it's bizarre to say the least. There's also um, in that comment theory. They discussed that um, players still have some affection towards uh, former coach fat Fitzgerald and uh Fitzgerald is in contact with um, current head coach Dave Braun um, that they discuss, share some advice. Um, and Braun had great things to say about Coach Fitzgerald, which is all seemingly pretty tone deaf, knowing what the allegations are, the severity of those allegations, and fundamentally how it, as a head coach, you should understand that at a minimum, this is a very bad message to send as one within within the community at Northwestern to it sounds horrible to the community outside. And I do not envy the life of the sports information director at Northwestern. Uh, it, it should be noted that there is a decent amount of staff turnover post bowls um, that is occurring. So we'll see what some of the new staff feels. But at the same time, it's a weird feeling it it seems weird to me if that's the feeling in the locker room given what we know through reporting and investigations there at northwestern yeah it's not a good look just just to kind of optically it looks bad to be like yeah we love this guy who's under investigation and like fighting with the university to get all of his buyout even though he got fired for cause for allowing whatever was going on um interesting though that they brought it up at all I was shocked that they would even have those questions for the team. When we talk about distractions, it's like, well, is this really relevant to what's about to happen in this bowl game? Um, it is interesting that a lot of that staff is leaving and that Braun is going to have to build a new staff afterwards. But uh, to that end, they acquitted themselves well and have some momentum going into next season. At least that's the hope, right? Yeah, I'll say they... They are a very good football team, and the defense that Braun has installed is a very good defense. He has mentioned he won't be calling the plays next year like he did this year. I think recognizing how overworked you typically are trying to both call plays on one side of the ball and be a head coach. Um, and yeah, on the field, Northwestern looks to be in good position. Everything off the field, I think there are red flags and questions, and I think media writ large maybe needs to monitor this to see okay are the steps that need to be taken to change a culture happening correct i'm gonna get us out of here on that one and we're gonna go on to the aforementioned cotton bowl classic uh the cotton bowl this was the 87th edition of the game i believe first started in 1937 and this year we have the university of missouri playing ohio state university and before we get too deep into it, there was 
a lot of going on with transfers with Ohio State. Their starting quarterback, McAid, McCord. Is that his name? Yes. I apologize for getting his name wrong. Kyle McCord. Kyle McCord has transferred. He will be suiting up for the Orange next year of Syracuse. But we had a backup come in. Devin Brown wears number 33. A lot of people got caught off guard by that to begin with. And uh, he almost immediately gets injured. Uh, he gets injured in the very first half of this game, I believe at the end of or middle of the first quarter, twists his ankle and does not go back in the game. And next thing we know, we have Lincoln Kleinholtz, who is a true freshman, come in. And now he's making his big, big time football debut. And uh, your note here kind of says it all, if you don't mind kind of walking us through that. Yeah. When when watching the game, it was very clear to me that he was not ready. Kleinholz was not ready for the level of defense the Missouri defense is. And Mizzou's defense is an SEC defense. It is, it is a legitimately very good defense. And he was not ready for particularly the pressure and the speed he had to get the ball out in that situation, ready to make the throws that you need to make against this sort of against that sort of defense. And if you're not getting the separation of your receivers, if you're not getting help in the run game, which Ohio State really struggled in the run game as well, negative 0.17 yards per rush, which Mizzou did very well in the run game with 0.17 yards per rush. They it's a interesting, quite literally the opposites there. But if you're not giving help with the run game to a young quarterback who's needing to make throws and I, my assumption is throughout the season hasn't gotten even practice reps to be as comfortable with the offense as you really need to be to excel in this situation. It it really puts you in a bind. It's why Ohio State only scored three points. Yeah, that's part of it. I, I really do want to I really want to look at how Ryan Day really called this game. He called this game with the expectation that his quarterback would be able to run the offense as if he was any other of the great quarterbacks he's had access to at Ohio State. And that was not the case. I mean, one of the things that really jumps out to me is the success rate. And the success rate of the Buckeyes in this game is 33%. So one in every three plays was not successful. Actually, one in every three plays was successful. That's not a recipe for success. No. You are going to struggle if you can't Get your team where they need to be with some sort of regularity. And again, all of the scoring in this game happened in the second half. And it was all Missouri. (laughs) The Buckeyes kicked a field goal in the first half and had a 3-0 lead through halftime. Once Missouri, I think they dropped a 50-yard dime, which was just perfect pass. Perfect pass. And that kind of, once that dam broke... That was kind of it. The onslaught was from there. Missouri takes the lead, and Ohio State couldn't get any, couldn't get anything. They couldn't run. They couldn't pass, and it really showed. Particularly, you know, the pick that they threw. Um, excuse me, they lost a fumble. Yeah, I was like, I do want to give credit to both defensive lines. Uh, a eighty percent havoc rate, which is eighty eighth percentile for Mizzou, a seventeen percent havoc rate, eighty six percentile for for Ohio State. Like. Both defense, both defensive lines made both offenses just constantly in a bind. And 
um, Cook for, for Missouri quarterback. He was able to make things happen with his legs. That Very much so. Ran for 100 yards. Really got Mizzou out of the bind. Uh, Cody Schrader, who's a running back, was excellent today as well, or yesterday as well. And those both of those players really generated the the offense that Mizzou needed to get that 14 to three uh, lead, which still still is in the realm of soccer scores. Um, Apparently, according to what was that match you showed me earlier? <laughs> there is a Arsenal U16 uh, game against Liverpool's U16s uh, that was 14 to three in which one player scored 10 goals. And note, this is youth level football, but it's yeah. I think there was also a point in the game where it was a 7-3, which would be among the second highest uh, scoring games within the Premier League. So some some fun times if you like comparing different kinds of football score lines. But yeah, low scoring defensive game. I think both defensive lines absolutely earned. Uh, earned their stripes for sure. Earned their stripes. And yeah, I think. Mizzou just had a little bit more on offense and, and Lincoln Kinehold could be a Kinehold's could be a great quarterback down the line, but today was not or yesterday was not his day. Um and yeah, well could be an interesting uh next season for Ohio State, depending on what they can do in terms of depth at quarterback. I'm gonna read you some numbers here, Jeff. Emeka Abuka, six catches. G. Scott, one catch. Xavier Johnson, two catches. Jaden Ballard, zero catches. Cade Stover, zero catches. Travion Henderson, zero catches. Brandon Innes, zero catches. Carnell Tate, one catch. Overall, they went, completed 10 passes on 24 attempts. This is Ohio State as a team. Hard yeah. to win a football game. It's hard to win a football game if your entire production is 106 yards on 10 complete passes. That's three points is going to be it's hard to win a football game that way. And again, no interceptions, but it's tough, man. Yeah. It's tough. And yeah, and I, I, I wonder if what would have happened if Devin Brown was playing uh, or was not injured knowing that I assume day put together a game plan for him or if day from the beginning was putting together a game plan for Lincoln Kineholds, but it's the unfortunate nature of football. Sometimes injuries happen and they could wildly swing what you're doing. I, I don't know. He had completed four yard, four passes for 20 yards before he got hurt and was routinely under fire. I, think it might have gone about the same. Yeah. That's my estimation. I And I don't want to discredit Devin Brown. I'm sure he's a great quarterback, but he was in a tough spot. He was. Yeah, I spot. mean, the missing through opt out your one of your best targets in um, for Ohio State, it's yeah, you're the Mizzou secondary shut down everybody else and put you under pressure like any quarterback is going to struggle in that situation. Correct. So uh, tough loss 
How did I forget the name of Marvin Harrison Jr.? I'm sorry, Marvin Harrison Jr. All good. Uh, uh, he is one of the most famous wide receivers ever with the name Marvin Harrison. So, um, But uh, I, yeah, this is a tough loss for the Buckeyes. They are going to go into an offseason wanting to fire their head coach next season. And I want to be clear, they, went 11, they won 11 consecutive games before they played Michigan. I, yeah. I'm not quite sure what people want. Uh, I know that it's going to look very different next season for them without having what is going to ostensibly be an all-touted, all-world QB at the helm. Not to say their quarterbacks that they have are not five stars or what have you, but there's uncertainty with them, is what I would say. And that's going to really make people want him to not have that job anymore. Only lost seven games, guys. He's only lost seven games. So uh, I'm going to move us out of this to the game you fell asleep on, Jeff. Uh, the Kansas Jayhawks went and won their bowl game and played just phenomenal. They played UNLV, and uh, it was exactly what I wanted it to be. I couldn't fall asleep. I was on the edge of my seat all game, and I got what I wanted. I got points. Uh, tell me more, Jeff. What did you think of the half you watched? So the half I watched was all Jayhawks. And I checked the next morning and it turned out the second half things did not play out the way they did in the first half. Nope. Um, went for a long run, I think, earlier this day, which will tire you out. Um, can UNLV during that first had a, had a couple of turnovers. Candace paid him back uh, nope. a little bit and that helped UNLV get back in and UNLV also was very good running the ball, uh, but it turns one thing Kansas did very well was passing the ball despite a lot of pressure, particularly in the second half, um, on them from UNLV. But fourth and one, a deep dive from Jason Bean right at the beginning of the fourth quarter that put Kansas up 35-24, kind of sealed it when UNLV was looking that they might be able to get there. And Bean did an excellent job despite the pressure because he was running and can throw on the run very well. Yes, he threw a couple picks, but also threw six touchdowns. It it was a banger of a game to catch up on. Uh, and these are, I think, two of our personal favorite offenses to watch with the go-go. That's uh, right, baby. I love the go-go offense so much. And Lance Leipold's offense as well. And I'm, both of these offenses were very good. Yeah, it was just a great game. If if you want something to replay uh, when we get into the lean football months, put this on. Agree completely. I just want to point out, we talk about the, the expected points. Kansas offensively had 23.25 expected offensive EPA, which is just crazy cuckoo bananas. Yeah, I'll say their deep passing game was exceptional. I think we think of them very much through their rushing game and rushing attack, which you know, they actually did somewhat of a decent job containing. But... That still opened up 
a lot in the deep ball and they just I mean they had 0.95 EPA per drop back uh which is 99th percentile like yeah. they I want to put an even finer point on it they had 12% explosive rate so of the plays that they had yes eight of the plays that they ran were just explosive plays if you take out all of the explosive plays that Kansas had, they have a minus 10 EPA. The long ball, yep. man. The three-pointer. It's that I've read an article before that that deep passes are the three-pointers of college football. And it's like, look, man, if if I send a deep man and you don't respect that and you don't cover him, I'm gonna do terrible things to you. And as I I will say this for the final time this season on the Kansas Jayhawks. That offense is diabolical. And Leipold is, he's up, he's, he's entering wizard territory. I don't know if he's there yet, but he's, he, he is knocking on the door and get telling old coach, the purple wizard himself, listen, <laughs> you're not going to be alone for much longer that there's a Kansas wizard out here on these planes. Um, and I, I love them so much. This was, I had so much fun with this team. Uh, Kansas really showed me something and uh, I'm, I'm excited for next year. I really am. Like I'm genuinely excited for next year. I say for both these these teams, I think they're on oh, upward trajectories, and they got a chance to display that to say a lot more people than I feel like a lot of the their games normally do. Just UNLV in the Mountain West and on a little later than when a lot of folks watching the games are up, and I think people do not necessarily think, "Oh, Kansas football that's that's something to turn on," but I hopefully some uh, additional folks got to see um, how exciting these two teams are. Penn State just had a kick blocked uh, in the. Yeah, I just saw that. I've got (laughs) it. So that's what that's what the pause was, folks. I one last thing I really want to point out on this: Kansas was averaging 15 yards a pass. I don't know, man. You get. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can't, yeah. you can't allow that if you want to win. Sorry, UNLV. But listen, Coach Marion, I, I love the go-go offense. They also were averaging eight yards a pass. So lots of lots of yards, lots of points. And uh, I'm excited to see what UNLV does next year. Uh, I want to move on very quickly. Did you watch any of the Pinstripe Bowl? A little bit. We had... Um... My mom was in town, so we were we were doing some other stuff back and forth as as this was happening. But caught it's in it's in pieces and a little bit of uh, right at the end. So I I make no no secret I grew up in Piscataway, New Jersey itself. I've been to many Rutgers football games. I've watched Rutgers lose a lot of games in not as heartbreaking fashion, where they just got turned into a grease spot by the opposing team. <laughs> But I watch Rutgers go out here. Have I told you my high school physics teacher's story about watching games at Rutgers in the 90s when he was a student? No. So he was telling us that there got to be a point where the head coach just told the punter he can do whatever he wants. Because it doesn't really matter. They were they they were like continuously running games down that much is like. Just do whatever you want. If you want to fake it, fake it. Just because it's like, 
what else is going to happen? Those teams were so bad. I So I'm going to take a step back and wax poetic for a moment. I uh, grew up in Piscataway, New Jersey. I graduated from Piscataway High School. Um, uh, in the 90s, going to those bad Rutgers football games was kind of like, hey, you want to go to a game? Not really. <laughs> well, we're all going. And uh, we would all uh, – it was a very short bike ride to Rutgers Stadium. And we would sit in – well, it's now called something different. I will only ever know it as Rutgers Stadium. And it was a horseshoe. It was un, it was unfinished on the North End also when I was a kid. But anyways, we would go and watch them get blown out routinely. Um, but one of the fun things was when I got to high school, this is the early aughts, the band, this was a big outreach from Rutgers. They gave our band uh, snare drums and all new drum equipment because they were trying to uh, this was, and Jeff, you being a percussionist would appreciate this, but they were yeah. changing over from the old style snare drums to the new style, the current style of snare drums. Uh, this is early 2000s, so whatever that was 20 years ago. So probably Mylar to Kevlar heads. Yeah. And so we were one of the few high school marching bands with with the Kevlar. Um, and uh, I always had a love for Rutgers. I got recruited to go to Rutgers. Um, the Rutgers prep had tried to recruit me to come to Rutgers prep and then matriculate early into an advanced science hmm. program, um, which my father asked him how much it was to go to the program. And they told him, and he said, I'm sorry, son, we don't have the money for that. Uh, oh, it was expensive. It was Oof. very expensive. Um, but uh, I have a lot of love for the Rutgers Scarlet Knights and for, again, the university of my home state. And so when this game came on, I said, I'm going to watch it. Now, I had no expectation. I just wanted Rutgers to acquit themselves well. Um, and then they had 0.12 EPA per play and a success rate of 48%. Just like didn't see that coming. And they played the best defense I've seen them play all year, which granted Miami has had an up and down season. But they forced a turnover, a single turnover, which became the difference in the game. And they got two sacks and they didn't give up any. So I'm just very proud of the Scarlet Knights. I, they played wonderful and all I've ever wanted. And I talk about Northeast football all the time because I'm from the Northeast and I grew up in Jersey and we, my high school won multiple state championships while I was there. And like Jersey plays a tough brand of football. We play a hard nose. We're going to run the ball. We're going to play tough defense. That's just throughout the state that just permeates the state. And, and sometimes it doesn't work and your high school goes, uh, oh, and 11 your senior year. Are you speaking from but experience? Still, but still, for some reason, think that the way is just running the ball up the middle. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I um, I spent a lot of time wondering why we only ran up the middle. Uh, and it's because the science teacher who was also the football coach was bad at schematically drawing plays. I found that out when I was a junior. And asked him, and he said, yeah, man, uh, I don't draw the plays because this is the year they win at the state championship. I had to stop drawing the plays because they weren't working. I had to give it up to another <laughs> teacher. <laughs> so, But um, my Rutgers teacher story, um, my high school biology teacher was on one of the teams that won 11 games in the 70s for Rutgers. And he, uh, he instilled a love of me and a belief that the team could be better. There's a lot of people who will make fun of that, notably the Big Ten cohort that I have on this podcast with me. But uh, I have always believed that the state of New Jersey produces good football talent. It just takes 
the right circumstances to get it to Rutgers. So uh, go and Rutgers. Some, and, and Rutgers has done that in my lifetime. Like, I am, oh, yeah. I am not so young that, you know, yeah, like it, it can happen and it is cool when it does. Rutgers and it, and it excites games. so much around. Oh, yeah. Around the state and in particular. There are people that. Like to not consider the existence of Rutgers and it makes it unavoidable to think about them in the same way that you think about Penn State or Maryland or any of the other kind of within not too far of a drive, big public flagships. Yeah. Also a great school. It's a phenomenal yeah. school. Was asked to join the Ivy League. So like. Yeah. Love them. Love them dearly. I love you, Rutgers. I love my home state. Uh, and uh, let's uh, let's uh, bring some excitement back and win some football games next year. Also big that it's a win over Miami. Yes. Former Big for, East foe. For the, for the Big East heads. Playing in a playing playing in New York City at that. <laughs> yeah. So uh Miami's got some listen, I think they need to fire that head coach and get a different one. I think Mario is a terrible coach. I I understand. They should have not fired the last guy and just kept him. You would think. But listen, I I'm one of the people that like is skeptical about Mario Cristobal as a coach. I've watched him coach a lot of games, even when he was at Oregon. And I was just like, I don't know, man. This guy lost to Stanford. Like, I I don't see it. Other people think he's a good coach, and that's fine. The people of the University of Miami think he's a good coach, the ones in Florida. But I have watched him lose so many games in heartbreaking fashion. And I'm just like, what are, what, are, what is it? Help me understand. Don't see it. Uh, and this didn't help. Yeah, and I will say that is an interesting job in a lot of ways and an interesting university in a lot of ways compared to other schools that I think a lot of people in in college football view as in a certain air. And it is sort of fascinating how any any coach there kind of navigates what some of the expectations are, but also what many of the realities on the ground at, at the University of Miami are. Correct. And this is a conversation we're going to have to have. Um, and I think I'm, I'm going to, we're going to have to ask Miami people, people who follow this team, people who understand the current situation of Miami, uh, Miami, Florida, because the real Miami, the Red Hawks, uh, won their conference. So don't know what to make of that. Uh, I'm going to move us on, Jeff, to our dessert. New Year's yep. themed all around. What do you have for us this week? So we got New Year's resolutions for your teams. So okay. things things you want your teams to do and, and improve upon in the coming year. For Purdue. Uh-oh. Our... I think there are some good pieces and good things that Coach Walters is trying to do, but I think there are two kind of big gaps that really hurt us at a lot of points this year. One is on the offensive line, the depth wasn't there and the play wasn't there. We have both portal and high school recruiting brought in um, more players on the offensive line. We'll see where some of that 
lands and there's there's actually a really interesting story of a player that initially committed number of years ago to Notre Dame that is coming is technically a transfer um, to Purdue, but never played a down at in South Bend due to being involved in a car accident and health concerns coming out of that. So that is a really interesting story. And I hope he's a great, great season um, and doesn't have any, any health issues there. Um, And on the other side of the ball, coach Walters wants to do a lot in terms of really interesting defensive scheme and pressures. And our secondary really wasn't up to the job to make that happen. Right. That's another place bringing in a couple transfers, some high, high school talent. We'll see how that can improve in addition to just another year under a really great defensive coach. If, if we can improve there, because I think those, those two weaknesses I think if you turn that around, you get a couple more wins and that that gets you back back to bowls. Agreed. I um I'm excited for what Purdue is building. I I there's another program that I'm like, they're always just like one great year away. And again, that you and I love that that eleven win, not eleven win, but what did they win when they beat Michigan State and uh Iowa when they were both ranked? Watched them both, told people like, listen, y'all don't know what's coming. Coach Brom's a good coach. And they were like, ah, yeah. I don't know. He said, like, oh, this Coach Brom guy's pretty good as a coach. Uh, but uh, go Purdue, boiler up, uh, and uh, make it happen out there. Um, so I've Coach got- Walters also seems like he is loved by the players. An yes. exciting guy. Like a, a, a guy that is having fun and, and the players seem to have fun. with. So I, I'd like to see him succeed because it seems like he's building something great in terms of locker room culture. Absolutely. Um I've got two, Norfolk State University, uh, my beloved alma mater, uh, behold the green and gold. Um, My only resolution is to play better. Uh, They lost, they went three and nine. Uh, They lost six games by one score. Um, They beat the snobs, beat Hampton. So (laughs) that made my season, but they also then didn't beat anybody else, including losing to Morgan State in heartbreaking fashion at home on homecoming. Um, So for me, it's play better, uh, play tighter, play smarter. And play with more experience. Now that you've lost these one possession games, you know how to win one possession games. Um, for the offense, it's got to be more explosive. Got to be. Um, one of the things that we always struggled with, at least watching Norfolk State, is getting the ball in chunk plays. Um, Norfolk State is not built to. It's not built to sustain long drives. That's just not how this offense is constructed. And if you're going to build your offense that way, you have to at least take shots. And Norfolk State just didn't take shots. Just didn't do it. On defense, they did everything I wanted them to do, just not enough of it. You know, more, better, faster. That's what I need from y'all. I need the defensive stops that you showed in the beginning of the season, all season. Um, And beat your rivals. That's where I'm at. Beat, Beat Virginia State. Beat Hampton. Beat North Carolina A&T and win the MEAC. Uh, you do that and I'll be a happy camper. So the, the MEAC, where it is, is not necessarily a healthy place for a conference, given its membership is very small. Six teams play, that yeah. play football. Six teams that play football. But at the same time, it means your schedule is entirely rivals. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so... 
it is it is fascinating in in that regard that it is yeah every game has such high stakes um and yeah that'll be an interesting that is an interesting place watching other changes in the fcs landscape of how does the MIAC navigate it's expansion really it's going back to the teams that left and say please come back like north carolina anti's fan base is furious where they're at hampton's family hampton people who i talk to have told me we are pressuring the new president to get us out of the big uh, out of the colonial we cannot stand it we we do not like it they cannot stand being where they're at especially after some of the things that the university of delaware's president has said about how such things that sounded incredibly they were incredibly dog whistly and i'm not going to i'm not going to repeat them but like hampton you have a home in the miac we love you we miss you and we want to keep beating you in basketball baby come on home <laughs> come on home um i'm sorry what this is why they won't come back uh i see <laughs> Also with its exits. Yeah, it's I have I have heard a lot of school or a lot of rumblings that there might be schools that might want to also leave and that could fall apart, even though it's a larger conference. They're trying to pull teams in to stay alive is what it is. Yeah. Which, After they lost James Madison and now losing Delaware to FCS powers. Yes. I mean, have fun in the Sun Belt, Delaware, whatever. Nobody cares. You didn't want to play Delaware State for like a century. So whatever. Um, for Howard, won the MIAC, acquitted themselves well in the Celebration Bowl, have great recruiting. I All I need from y'all is win more games. That's all I can ask for. You've beaten an FBS opponent before. So we've already not crossed that list off. Now it's beat an Ivy League team. I don't know if they will. I don't know if we play one next year, but Howard, you know, go out there and shock the world. That's all I can ask for Howard at this point. Let's all play the schedule game. Oh, boy. Can we even do that? Are those schedules out? Uh, Let me do some Googling. It's coming, folks. We're going to vamp while it's here. Uh, Norfolk State's first game of the year, and I can tell you this because I have it marked on my calendar. The <laughs> MIAC SWAC Challenge Kickoff Classic is going to be in Atlanta, and they will be playing the reigning uh, Black National Champions, Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University Rattlers, and Norfolk State are going to play for the first time since 2019. And uh, I'm very excited about it because green and gold is always going to be better than green and orange. That's my personal opinion. I'm so, biased. Also appears September 28th, at Princeton? And this is Norfolk State or Howard? This is, this is Howard. Yeah, they're going to play Princeton. So chance to beat an Ivy League team, Ivy League team, baby. That's where it goes sometimes. Sometimes you sometimes you play Princeton, who yeah. I think had a good season this year. Pretty sure they had a good season. Let me do some live researching. Because they, they are a perennial power in the Ivy. So even if they had a, a bad season, they're never far from a um, bounce back. But let me let me do some confirming here. Yep, we're, we're doing it live. Just like uh, some folks will say. Um, they went five and five. <laughs> 
So this is Princeton. Princeton went five and five. Yeah. So that's how it goes. Uh, next season, though, Howard yeah. will be playing at Rutgers at Princeton. So two trips to Jersey, uh, my home state. I should probably go to one of those. Uh, and then they're headed to Tennessee State at some point in the season to play the Tennessee State Tigers. Oh, no, that's a home game. Excuse me. So I might actually go to that. No, seriously, I might actually go to that game. Uh, Norfolk yeah. State is heading. Uh, Norfolk State has uh, a wild schedule of their own. I know they're playing North Carolina A&T, so that's going to be fun. So, yeah, fun for us all. So looking at Princeton, a lot of close, close losses. So, yes. I think they're they they will be interesting in in FCS to. Uh, to watch as well that that could be a very good game of kind of two teams coming off around 500 seasons but obviously howard winning their conference and princeton not quite and and seeing early season how both those teams shape up i will say this norfolk state has vmi on their schedule and the last time we played vmi it was like beating up on a high school so at least they'll hope yeah it's an interesting one it is interesting. I'd call it not great. Uh, but we get Hampton, and we're going to Hampton to play them. So. But we'll do that in the offseason. Jeff, anything you want to leave the people with before we get out of here? I'll say just a, a reminder before January 14th, uh, the run donation link is still up. I did a little while ago meet uh, Meet my funders in goal, but anyone interested in uh, in supporting curator disease uh, can do that as well as we still have a uh, few more days of bowls and uh, enjoy that. Anyone who, who was traveling for the holidays, travel home safely. Um, and yeah, it's uh, shaping up to be looks to be a good year in 24. I'll say it for you. Boiler up and in Indiana word. Uh, it's going to be a great year. I'm excited for it. Uh, the playoff is coming. It'll be here in two days. And then that'll be the end of the four-team playoff, and we'll all commiserate as the 12-team playoff <laughs> is just as chaotic and nonsense and meaningless uh, as we get into it next year. I would like to tell everybody, enjoy your offseason. Find a way to, whatever that may be. Enjoy time with the family. Unplug from football. It's okay. Football does not have to consume your every waking moment. So, as we end every episode the same way, don't forget to feed your message.